0: From NPR News, this is Foreign Dispatch, a weekly roundup of some of the best coverage of news and events filed by NPR's correspondents from around the globe. I'm Kevin Beasley. This week, the traumatized children of Syria, how the political crisis in Washington is impacting US policy in Asia, and a family struggling with conflicting ideologies in Egypt. Of the millions of people who've fled war in Syria over the last two and a half years, more than half of them are children. UN agencies tracking the exodus say most of these children are under the age of 11. NPR's Deborah Amos has been meeting some of them in Jordan.
1: We're driving in one of the poorest neighborhoods in Amman. The Jordanian capital. Psychologist Ahmed El Rababa and Nisreen Bital make house calls four days a week to treat traumatized Syrian children. The project is funded by the Syrian American Medical Society. This rundown neighborhood is home to refugee families packed into squalid apartments, often isolated without much support. So the team brings a food basket on every visit.
2: We visit the family and give um, breakfast food like a gift.
1: That's Dr. Bital. She says many parents have no idea how to help their children cope. They're suffering from profound stress themselves. And do you see right away that the children
3: need your help? Usually the mother is the one who starts talking. The other category of children is that you immediately see when we come the they are aggressive, and then you start asking the mother what's with your
1: child. It's the first home visit in this neighborhood, so the team waits for a signal that it's okay to come inside.
3: There's a father
1: standing on the other corner. He's waving to the team of doctors and he's holding the hand of his little girl. They're going to lead the way to his apartment. As we climb steep concrete steps, Dr. Ababa tries to coax the little girl to say her name. She He gets nothing back. She clings to her father for many of these children. The physical threats are behind them, but deep psychological scars remain. Once inside the cramped apartment, her father does much of the talking. We agree not to use his name. Everything was stolen. Our car, our home, he says, and I was wounded. He's now blind in one eye and shuffles with a profound limp. His young daughter takes it all in. The psychologists are patient. They listen and spend a few hours here. They've made home visits to a thousand refugee families over the past year, but Dr. Rababa says there are thousands more desperate for help. Back in his office, he shows us drawings by
3: children in therapy. Children
0: draw the reality they have been through. So you can see children
1: um, being killed, airplanes bombing houses, war scenes, killing and blood. There's another stark reality. When those planes bomb Syrian homes, there's chaos. With a neighborhood in flames, families can be separated in an instant. There's a growing number of children who cross the border alone and arrive at Zaatari, Jordan's sprawling refugee camp.
3: They don't know what if uh, they'll ever see their families again. So most of them come here when they're really in a desperate situation.
1: That's Phoebe Matabi, a child protection specialist with the International Rescue Committee. She heads a program to identify unaccompanied minors who arrive with a new wave of refugees each night. And some children are very young. You've had as young as four
3: years. Four years come without their parents? Yes. A four year old came without their parents, but in the company of the siblings, who also all under 18
1: years. They are now with a foster family inside the camp. That's also part of the IRC program to identify refugee families willing to care for a traumatized child. In one of the refugee trailers in Zatari, Abdullah Rafat says he fled southern Syria a year ago with his wife and 11 children. Rafat says parents don't look after their children here like they did in Syria. I'm trying to have discipline, he says, but the other parents, they just let it go. A few months ago, he agreed to care for one more child. 17 year old Abdul Rahman, who arrived in Zatari alone. For now, he's become part of this family. I have enough for a soccer team, Rafat jokes. But he's serious when he explains why he agreed to accept one more into his crowded household. He doesn't have anybody, not anybody. So we decided to care for him. If he's left by himself, Life would have ruined him. A shy boy, Abdul Rahman smiles. He says he's happy here in Zachary, but he says he hopes he can find his parents one day. Deborah Amos, NPR News.
0: How the political crisis in Washington is impacting US policy in Asia, and a family struggling with conflicting ideologies in Egypt. The continuing government shutdown has had its impact not only here in the US but also overseas. As he wrestled with the crisis, President Obama cancelled a long-planned trip to visit four nations in Asia. That has disappointed and worried some of America's friends in the region, who are counting on the U.S. to stand up to an increasingly assertive China. NPR's Frank
2: Langford reports. The disappointment over President Obama's no-show in Asia is palpable.
3: Overall, Obama's inability to come has deepened the anxieties of allies in the region.
2: Psychologically, there will be a
0: far-reaching impact. It's the worst thing that could happen, for perhaps the worst reason.
2: Those were comments from Richard Heydarian, a foreign policy advisor to the Philippine Congress, Huang Jing, a political scientist at the National University of Singapore, and Simon Tay, who chairs the Singapore Institute of International Affairs. After two wars and a financial crisis at home, President Obama pledged to rebalance or pivot American foreign policy towards Asia, which is becoming the world's center of economic gravity. But, as Simon Tay says, there's been skepticism over America's staying power.
0: For some time already, people have been wondering about whether the pivot, which was declared just two years ago, could really be sustained.
2: Leaders here hope Mr. Obama would allay those concerns this week. Instead, his cancellation only raised more questions. Wang Jing of the National University of Singapore says it just didn't look good.
3: People are going to say that, oh, you cannot even put your own house in order. How could you take care of Asia-Pacific?
2: Worse, the shutdown has become a source of humor, Richard a. Darian says it was a punchline yesterday at a current affairs forum in Manila.
3: They were all making jokes and quips about America. All were saying, like, the Americans even have enough money to sustain their own state operations. Can they be a functional state to begin with, never mind them being a superpower?
2: For the Philippines, a close U.S. ally, declining American power is nothing to laugh about. The country is locked in a David and Goliath dispute with China over islands in the South China Sea.
3: For the Filipinos, the viability of America as a, as a state with you know, enough fiscal resources is a very important issue.
2: With Mr. Obama in Washington, Chinese President Xi Jinping had the stage in Asia to himself. He spoke at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, or APEC, meeting in Indonesia, which President Obama had planned to attend. Simon Tay notes President Xi even became the first foreign leader to address Indonesia's parliament.
0: Which is ironic, because in the last 10 years, Indonesia has become a compelling
2: story for democracy.
0: And rather than having the U.S. leader be the first person to address that joint house, it has been the Chinese.
2: Secretary of State John Kerry has come to Asia in Mr. Obama's place. At a speech yesterday at APEC, he opened with a joke.
3: In 2004, obviously, I worked very, very hard to replace a president This is not what I had in mind.
2: (laughs) Mr. Kerry then insisted the political stalemate back home had no bearing on America's commitments here.
3: No one should mistake what is happening in Washington as anything more than a moment of politics.
2: Ernie Bauer focuses on Southeast Asia at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. He says despite concerns here, the United States can and should become more engaged in Asia. I'm confident for a couple of reasons. One, just the geopolitical math is compelling. Asia is where uh, the the majority of our trade uh, is coming. It's the largest growth region in the world. And for all the gloomy talk, the U.S. is still the world's dominant military power. Bauer thinks America's engagement in Asia ultimately depends on political will. And if President Obama can make it back here on another trip, well, that would probably go a long way. Frank Langford, NPR News, Shanghai.
0: Now let's meet three sisters trying to stay together amid the turmoil of Egypt. They're living in a country where political conflict has left hundreds dead, victims of the violence that followed the military ouster of President Mohamed Morsi in July. The country is more polarized than at any time in recent memory, and so are the family members who spoke with NPR's Leila Fadel.
3: Nagwa, Dina and May are sisters. All three are married, all three have children, all three had always been close. Until now. Egypt's political crisis is changing those relationships. Negwa and May sympathize with the Muslim Brotherhood. Dina, on the other hand, supports the military, arguing that the generals are just trying to keep extremists at bay. First, we meet Negwa at her home in eastern Cairo. She usually wears a face covering favored by ultra-conservative Muslims, but today she's inside, among women, so she's dressed in a T-shirt and jeans. (laughs) Negwa is a devout Muslim. And although she didn't support ousted President Mohamed Morsi, she says she feels pain over what's happened in her country, an elected Islamist president forced from power with the backing of much of the population. And she worries that she'll get caught up in the wave of popular anger towards the Islamists. Hundreds of people are being arrested, often just on suspicion of links to the brotherhood. People look at me and think extremists, Negwa says, with a wry laugh. When Husi Mabarak's secular autocratic regime was toppled in 2011, Nagwa felt safe enough to wear a face veil. Her job at a partially state-owned company never allowed it before. But after the uprising, she felt the space for freedom of religious expression was opening up. Now she's afraid again. There are rumors at the office that the company directors are now labeling each employee in one of three categories. extremist, moderate, or non-religious. Based on her attire, Negwa is sure she's been classified as an extremist. She tries not to walk alone anymore, worried that her face covering, or niqab, may invite reprisals. She says when she hears people in the street condemning Islamists, she walks the other way. (laughs) Nagwa's sister, Dina, supports the military and loathes the Muslim Brotherhood. But the third sister, May, is a fierce supporter of the Islamists who joined street protests against the military after the overthrow of Morsi. We've become a divided family, says Nagwa. May refused to speak to us for personal reasons. But we caught up with Dina here in Beni Suef, a city on the Nile south of Cairo. She is also a devout Muslim. She wears a flowing abaya and a scarf over her hair, but she doesn't cover her face. Dina's husband was a member of parliament during the Mubarak era, and her brothers-in-law are police officers. Her sisters say that explains her opposition to the Muslim Brotherhood. But Dina insists she has her own take on the Islamists. They were seeking total control of the state, she says, and they were responsible for the wave of violence that followed the military takeover. When her children come home from school, Dina coaxes her five-year-old son to sing a pro-military song that he's memorized. I believe in the army, says Dina. Yes, some people were arrested unfairly, but the army is fighting terrorism. Then she talks about her sisters. She and Negwa have tried to avoid fights, but between Dina and May, there is no common ground. Their last conversation ended in tears. Dina says May curses anyone who backs the military. She says Dina is supporting people who could have murdered her and her husband, simply because they participated in protests against the generals. That accusation, says Dina, is what made her cry. That's why we don't talk about politics anymore, to save our relationship as sisters. Leila and NPR News.
0: For more international coverage, you can listen to your local NPR station. You'll find a list at our website, npr.org. And while you're there, you can find more international stories by clicking on News and World. For NPR News, I'm Kevin Beasley.